With funding from the National Lottery Heritage Fund, New Unity has transformed its Newington Green Meeting House into a fully accessible, free heritage space, showing its radical history and encouraging visitors to think differently. The building, which was a hotbed of revolutionary thinking in the 18th century, holds stories of Richard Price, Anna Letitia Barbauld, Andrew Pritchard, and most notably Mary Wollstonecraft, leading to it being described as the birthplace of British feminism. The Meeting House hosts a regular programme of events and exhibitions, celebrating this history and serving its local community. Find out more online. So this talk is about the title that you've chosen, Twice as Hard. That came up because we were discussing the realities of what brings everyone together, not just black people, but even POC in general. The concept of always being told from our elders that you have to work twice as hard in order to achieve just even the bare minimum, especially if you're from an immigrant family moving to a European country or just simply existing within a European country. The, the restrictions and realities of what you face in comparison to people who are European whilst you're navigating whichever industry, you are always told the same thing. I think it's like a generational thing, like our parents were told it. We were told it, and I'm sure no matter, no matter how time goes on, we'll be sharing the same sentence to even our offsprings. I think so, because in a way, um, our, our experiences will define how we'll teach the next generation, just as it has done for our parents' generation. Mm. Um, it's, I guess it's a tricky thing, because I think it's something that um, you navigate um, from very early on um, how and which you're treated within institutions whether that be um, the educational system or an institution of a working environment mm. um, I guess education is just kind of the practice space mm. in which you get to kind of work out how in which you can still try to thrive within an environment that is not set up for you to thrive, um, which I think is where working twice as hard or 10 times as hard mm. even comes from. Yeah. It, it's so that you can somehow try and make what, what you can of a leving, level playing field, e even though they'll, they'll never exactly be one. Mm. But I think also what's quite interesting is in navigating in environments such as education and work institutions is that some sometimes when you're treated differently is not even definable because um, I think because because of institutionalized racism it's so insidious and in the way in which um, society moves is that things aren't even necessarily tangible that you can see are obstacles for you. Mm. Now I think I think you made a point as well, especially when it comes to the educational system. I think that's exactly when that concept of working twice as, hard, twice as hard comes up because I think even talking about personal experiences even if you're when you're a pupil and you're going to school you're always constantly I recognise especially in my childhood that the black kids were always singled out like if someone were to be speaking in class it was always you're being disruptive rather and if you're asking too many questions like I personally had that my experience in school was more, um, don't get me wrong, I was, I was talkative in my own right, but 
it was usually if your mind isn't stimulated rather than it's seen as maybe this child might be maybe an overachiever or they're achieving things at a higher level in comparison to other people um, because then they feel their mind isn't stimulated then they seem that they're disruptive but really they just need to perhaps be put in a different group altogether that is more achieving quick, things quicker rather than being seen as disrupted, I, disruptive. I think a lot of people have dealt with that, especially. I, I, I think it's sometimes in that way as if, if you're treated like you're stupid or you're not intelligent, this can impact um, a child's ability to thrive regardless of the intellect they actually have. Mm. Um, so so I, think, I, think, I think that's why it's interesting when it comes to things like exams, because exams is when you can prove people wrong. Yeah. And I think we know very well that we had it last year when people would be given, um, they were given grades um, because of COVID. It based was, on their area. It, yeah. um, based on their area and based on teachers' predictions, and it's a well-known fact that um, teachers always underestimate the achievements of black students. Um, no, I remember I was talking about it earlier about first hand because my, my mother was a teacher and she would over she was one black teacher out of well now I can say it but it was charter school in Dulwich and that school is predominantly um, a very middle upper class school though they will have people because of area code that they'll accept. Um, even people from working class areas, it predominantly is a middle class, and she would be the only black teacher, and she would overhear um, other teachers, and some of them were even black, and they would state that um, majority of the black, because they would always predict them to have lower grades, or they would always be seen as disruptive, or seen as problematic, but then the moment she'd walk in the room, they would go silent. So they knew themselves that they were saying things that were just unfortunate and negative stereotypes. So with that, the whole concept of COVID now dictating that people's teachers will now predict their future, that's just, it's blasphemy, it shouldn't happen, because quite frankly, even with my tutor when I was at uni, though it was jumping from secondary school, she didn't, she didn't understand me as a pupil. So then they can be the people who literally navigate or open doors or close doors for your future, and it's not fair for a teacher, one teacher at that, to be able to predict your future entirely based upon the relationship that you have with them because as much as that teacher might see you as disruptive and try to predict you a low grade what you actually are capable of achieving is something much greater than that it's dangerous it really is and it also comes in terms of um choosing which categories to enter students into for their exams um, if you're entered into like the lower tier and the maximum grades that you can get is like a grade C, well then that's defining your university opportunities before you've even had a chance to sit a test. Mm -hmm. The test is already saying you can only reach this high. And I think, I think that's what it is. It's like sometimes the it's a glass ceiling and you can't see it, but sometimes you can see yeah. that the ceiling is there and it's put in place for certain people to not really um, be able to to move. I guess it's like people talk about like social mobility, but I guess in this society, they don't really want to have much social mobility. You always get a handful of people who do manage to achieve and move mm. through, but it's like, okay, we'll have a couple, but it's like we always say, it's like, you know, we're happy to have a token or yeah. one or two, but you, you don't want them all coming up at once. <laughs> what would happen then? 
No, it's true, it's true. But I think when we, what was interesting is like the conversations that you and I have had talking about this topic and even me speaking to other friends of, of colour, the concept of when you see that title twice as hard, automatically, I think we all think about the struggle or the, the circumstances that are not, it's not equal in order for us to achieve a certain, certain level in life. Even just to be stable, to have a stable income, to, to not want too much, just stability. The realities are, it's usually people always assume it's based upon struggle. But I think with that, we shouldn't always have this idea that it's a struggle narration. I think at the end of the day, a lot of us don't necessarily come from that. As much as I, that even I could hold my hands up and recognise that my, my experience is very different to the experiences of the people who I grew up with. Because I grew up in Peckham, which is predominantly, now it's gentrified as hell. But when I was living there, it was a very working class, black neighbourhood. And though I grew up on a council estate, my mother then achieved her degree, became a teacher, and then quite quickly, my environment and life completely changed. So in regards to classism, my concept of working twice as hard wasn't dependent on me having to do that in order to achieve certain things because of the school that I went to was predominantly middle class, and there were middle class black kids, middle class Indian kids, middle to upper class, and because I then moved from a working-class background to a middle-upper-class background. I then recognised that as much as I grew up in Peckham, I recognised my struggle was not the same as theirs. So the concept of twice as hard for me was more recognising that my mother had to work twice as hard in order to get from A to B. But for me, it wasn't I have to work twice as hard in comparison to the white kid. It was just it became my work ethic of recognising I had to do that. But, but then I think also what, like, a key thing is, like, it's, it's intersectionality, because intersectionality mm. is thinking about race, it's, th- it's thinking about class, it's mm. talking about gender, and how the, these different things can overlap. Because I've had, I've had a couple of um, conversations with people within the working environment um, when it's kind of been that, okay, um, well oh yeah, if you're black and a woman, but I come from a working class background, as if these things are comparative and measurable. Mm. And, and they're not. Like, all of these different elements play a part in terms of what opportunities you have mm. or don't 100%. have. 100%. Um, but the, at the end of the day, like, there is no level playing field for anybody. Mm. But race is a big factor mm. and then with gender and class oh. on top of oh. it oh. Um, some people can end up having a lot more obstacles to fight against no definitely 100 percent. because even if for instance if you look if i think about my neighborhood and where i grew up the reason why i may have been given given different opportunities is because of the environment that I then was put into. Because as much as I grew up in Peckham, my school was predominantly you know, middle, upper class kids who had different opportunities. And because you were socialising in those circles, you were then given better opportunities. And then when you're going to university, the arts, like, you know, even arts uni as a whole, the UAL, it's very like, lots of like social parties and you're socialising and you're networking in a completely different circle in comparison to my friends that I grew up with in Peckham. It's nepotism, isn't yeah. it? It's like you're going to give jobs and opportunities mm-hmm. to people you know mm-hmm. um, who either look like you or you've grown up with and mm-hmm. have that connection with. 
um, I, I think I think that that's what it comes down to essentially is people have difficulties relating to people who don't look like them and thus opportunities tend to circle around people who all look the same yeah definitely and I think that's I think this is where it stems a lot from education because even if I look at the teachers that I had in my school, predominantly majority of them are white. And I think, I do believe on role models around you or people who can inspire you. If you see people who look like you in roles that are seen as you know, glorified or just simply an element of stability and unlike the concept of struggle, then you believe that it's more likely that you're able to achieve those things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's really important. You need to have an uh, actual variation of different races, of all people, not even just race, even like sexuality, everything, just so that you recognise that it's normalised mm-hmm. to be able to achieve those things. Because even, for instance, again, I'm going to go back to mum as always, but her being a black teacher, the black kids in other classes were seen as disruptive, but in her class, they weren't disruptive. They mm-hmm. listened, they got the highest grades, but why is it that in that class they can not be seen as disruptive and they're treated equal it's because they see someone who looks like their mum or their aunt so they're able to relate and recognise that they're not being singled out because of their colour because the person who's teaching you do you know what I mean mm-hmm. it becomes it, you need to be able to see yourself within these people who are teaching you because if you recognise that everyone doesn't look like you to some degree if you don't see it you don't quite believe it that you're able to achieve bigger and greater things. Yeah, I, I think so. It's like, um, it's hard to imagine a future if there's no examples of it. Mm. Um, and I, I think, but I guess like now I think is quite an exciting time because we're at a moment where like the landscape of people in positions of mm. power and is changing. It's not completely changing, but I think I think there are it is improving, but then but then I think we're we're very much aware of that one person or mm, one or two yeah, people exactly. within an institution. <laughs> yeah. You're still inside yeah. that institution. That's exactly it. Because if you want to be excited and to praise these small opportunities that recently I won't I won't name names, but mm-hmm. I've been <laughs> <laughs> There's not a name. name. But we still would like to have a working career <laughs> of our own. <laughs> exactly. But I've been seeing like certain people getting roles like very high roles in certain positions whether it's fashion art politics um magazines anything and you're seeing it and it's great to see that there are more black um heads or like creative directors for certain things but that fundamentally they're one person they're used i feel like also people are used as tokenism again mm-hmm. it's like the the actual head office is still all predominantly it looks exactly the same, same as it it's before. not changing but in regards to the faces that they're putting up as a creative director or the editor like the front of house looks diverse but back of house the people who are actually not even back of house the people who are running it mm-hmm. are still not diverse so with that Yes, we have to be thankful and appreciate that there is change, but how much true change is there? We still have to be thankful, yes, but fundamentally, if the head office and the people who are actually in control of what goes where, who does what, when, if they're not changing, then quite frankly, we are just... It's, it's kind it's of a puppet. It's, yeah, you're a puppet. It's, it's a puppet speaking for somebody else. Mm. I mm. think, I think we can very much see that um, with, I guess in politics here with like Piri Patel Mm. Um, Mm. but let's not (laughs) go too much there 
Um, I mean, but it's everything, even when it comes to fashion or or politics like Barack Obama, everyone assumed that then all of a sudden the world would be a fairer place and Martin Luther King's dream came true. But cheap, then, and then, like, next week, Trump comes along. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Trump comes along and then all of a sudden you're seeing what's happened in 2021 in the first week, first two weeks, probably, like Capitol, when you saw all of the Trump supporters climbing... I guess well, how I, much change has really happened? I guess it's not so much change as in just I guess it's the small thing of being a child and looking at a TV mm. or looking at a magazine and being like that politician looks like me yeah. or talks like me yeah. and so it gives hope. It gives hope um, and can maybe inspire some people to want to be something that maybe they thought they wouldn't have been able to have done previously. Yeah. No, definitely. I think that's a positive thing. I think, of course, with what they say, we're not trying to like put, you know, move it aside because we're not seeing the change we want. Obviously, you have to still take baby steps before you can change everything altogether. No. It's not going to happen overnight. Lots of baby steps. Yeah. Generations, Generations of baby steps. Of baby steps. <laughs> so I think we, of course, have to be thankful for this change. But I think, unfortunately, the thing that will never ever disappear is the concept of having to work twice as hard, because quite frankly the systems that are in control of the educational system, politics, everything, it's still fundamentally not as diverse or reflective of this, you know, United Kingdom of diversity. Quite frankly, it's still, it's still predominantly very whitewashed. And I think we just have to be quite honest about that, honest and open. I think, I think also when we talk about the, the, the concepts of working twice, ten times as hard that uh, we've kind of all had instilled with, within us from an early age is, is how in which we relate to that. It's mm. one thing when it can, it can be a positive thing in terms of it is good to have a good work ethic and to work hard, but there is also the implications of being consumed by the need to work so much harder than other people. It's, it's also the, the good immigrant kind of perception mm. that you, you can't take a step wrong. And at the end of the day, we are people and we are flawed. And exactly. So there needs to be space to realise, yes, you want to work hard, but then like it's okay to take a break and like it's not a race. And... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That what you said is is so so hundred percent true. The concept of recognizing that you can just pause, but I think we're so used to constantly having to work mm-hmm. so hard that if you pause, you feel like you're doing something wrong. Like mm-hmm. you're you're letting down your family, you're letting down legacy, you're letting down generations who have had to work so hard in order for you to be where you are that you don't want to take it for granted. So the moment you pause, I personally feel like I'm almost like taking for granted the work ethic of my mum or her family or the people who have had to like literally travel windrush to get her. I feel like because we've we've got this opportunity to be in this country, as much as yes, there are so many disadvantages that we may face as people, the fact that we're here, it's 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 a blessing. So to take it for granted, I feel like the moment we pause, I think we all have that complex. That's why we in my opinion we have such major issues when it comes to mental health mm-hmm. in our community because we're constantly trying to be able to like you know 
pay out our mum's mortgage, buy our parents' houses so that they're okay. So they're, they're just constantly trying to achieve the next mm-hmm. thing rather than mm-hmm. once you've achieved something, you can't even have a moment to appreciate that thing. You're just thinking about, okay, what next? Because if you pause, then you're letting down the family. That makes any sense? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's a huge thing that that is detriment. But I think within the black community, the relationship to dealing with mental health um, is still mm. a process and something that needs to be unpacked in terms of um, of understanding and being empathetic towards. And I, th- I think also because because you have this kind of this you have the tropes of the strong black woman you're supposed to be strong you're not supposed to do you know what i mean like we're we're taught we're taught to work so hard and you've got to be strong and and i think there is like a shame in um needing a break break and thinking about like okay your career is not going to look how how you'd like it to look because you have to take a break do you know Mm. what i mean and and it happens to people. I think also that one of the issues of mental health, though, is the fact that so many people who I know who who need therapy, who need like I'm not saying that in an insult. I'm just saying. But like you know, even just me, like I I I see cancer. I I seek therapy. But I think one thing I recognise is, um, whilst I'm exploring different routes of therapy for my own personal reasons. Every single therapist I meet is white. I haven't ever come across anybody who um, looks like me. And I think this is something that causes some slight, um, I don't know, I, I think that concept of me saying that if you see a teacher who looks like you, you think that you're able to flourish and do as good as them because you see that as a role model. But I also think when it comes to therapy, there's only so much you can open up, yes, but there's only so much you feel like these people would truly understand you because your life experience. They it's cannot completely relate to different you. It's completely opposite. I, I think, and also, you, you can't explain your... It's like... It's like... I can see... No one... I could never imagine what it's like to be a white man. Mm. I can mm. see the lives of white men, but that's never going to be my experience. Mm. And at the end of the day, if it is not your lived experience, mm. there is only so much. I think we can, we can all try as much to be empathetic and, and put ourselves in other people's mm. positions, but, but, but you can't. And I think also it comes down to things that people are most passionate and care about things that impact them the most. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like, there's so many people who become advocates for something in particular because it has impacted them or their family. Mm. Um, I think, I think when, when you don't have that connection to something, there, there is a certain level of disconnect whether you want there to be or not. And I think, I think that's the issue when it comes to therapy and mental health because when I've tried to suggest to some friends to try it, they always say it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. But then I have then dealt with people who have then explored like jewelers or black therapists and they, they are black. And then they've stated that it's actually helped them because they feel more comfortable to explore or talk about their situation because they truly think that that therapist will understand. So I, I think 
It's, so, it's a mixture of things, though. It's not just necessarily about the therapist having to look like you. I think the concept of sitting down and taking a moment to yourself to actually discuss what is troubling you, even that, is, it's a fear. It's a fear to talk about generational trauma. It's a fear to talk about the race wars that you're seeing that are so blatantly put all over the media. There's so many things that want to actually open up and talk about it. Though that's a positive thing, the actual cycle and the process of then actually having to deal with that, that also is what fares us, I think, the most because we're constantly, day by day, having to deal with people who might be crossing the road holding their bags tighter or people who might be, you know, hearing even things like jewel music or grime music. I saw it the other day on um, BBC News where they made a post talking about drill music is even used up in court. So music which is just a way of expressing yourself. Despite, like, rock music mentioning murders. Exactly. And... Like, the amount of... I'm obsessed with Marilyn Manson and the amount of stuff which is talking about drugs, kill, I'm going to kill myself. They're not using that in court cases, but anything that is predominantly black, they automatically want to link. Like even there's um, a recent rapper called D.O.D. They made a whole um, documentary on it on BBC, and they were talking about he's the first musician who's been given a, I think it's called a CTB ban, which he can't speak about anything related to violence on any of his music. He can't talk about anything violent related. Otherwise, he can go back to prison. And it's just like, even you're controlling creativity and freedom of, and speech. freedom of speech because I know they've had like they've had terrorists before speak at like Oxford and Cambridge yeah but, and I but I guess it's like it's different for different people isn't it but what was I going to say um I had a point but <laughs> <laughs> I think what it comes down to is it's like we always need to recognize that as a community there are so many things that only we can truly understand because we've all lived that experience and with this concept of working twice as hard regardless of whether or not it's in educational system or it's in within the arts or if you want to do law or anything academic even the moment you're a child up until when you're an adult you always have that mentality of having to do so whether or not it's because of your white counterpart you just are then it becomes a work ethic it just becomes natural. But I think we do need to really take a moment to reflect on how that's impacting our mental and our physical state. Mm-hmm. Because there's so many things that you then have that's a, a continuation or an, an after effect or repercussions yeah. of not looking after your mental, of this constant need to constantly work. As I was saying in our last talk, where we could actually have an audience, it's pretty sad that a pandemic has to occur for people to actually take a moment to reflect mm-hmm. on what they actually want to do in life or what makes them happy or reflect on their actual life experience. It shouldn't be that the whole world needs to stop. A lockdown, part one, part two, part three, part four, needs to occur for us to actually have a moment to reflect on what truly makes us happy. Mm-hmm. I think that alone is an issue. I think we need to recognise the norm of Yes, you have to work hard, but it shouldn't be so much so that we end up becoming robots and we become lifeless. And also this, this constant need to prove yourself, I think, is, mm. is, is a dangerous thing, especially to, to place on children mm. um, when you're developing 
And I think, I think imagine if we had the space to be creative and to learn and to do all these things, but without the thought that if we don't work really, really hard at it or if we're not like the best mm. in our class or we have to be better than anybody else to just stand a chance. Mm. I, think, I think it's almost as if like it, it can get in your way wanting something so much and feeling that everything is dependent mm. upon achieving a level of success or a level of financial security because already because of race your position in society is has a certain a certain place that that I think um, people end up seeking money and success in order in order, in order to feel maybe a sense of protection and safety. Yeah. No, but it's true because I even know some people currently who are working jobs, like they've got the academic role. Um, they were meant to be here to talk, but unfortunately it's not quite possible. Um, but even people who go down the academic path, sorry, when they, um, they work so, so hard to reach a certain role, but then they end up making themselves physically mm -hmm. sick. And then with that, because you're so used to being a part of a certain circle or a certain class or a certain calibre of people, that you work yourself to the, to the grave, like literally, because you're trying to keep up appearances. Mm -hmm. And I think it's dangerous. I think there's a very thin line between working hard and just simply working yourself to an early grave. I think there's a level that needs to be discussed, I think, as a community and as, especially as a generation, I think... We're quite lucky where what we're able to achieve or, or what circles we're able to be in. Perhaps our parents or our grandparents weren't able to be in those circles due to the mere fact of trying to keep a roof over your head. Mm -hmm. We're given a better level of opportunity that our parents and our grandparents weren't able to have. So I think we should use that, but not then take on board the, the worry that our grandparents or our parents had. I think that's what we need to be really careful about how we enable the next generation to come in without giving them that fear of letting us down and actually just living their truths. I think mm -hmm. that's really important to me personally. Because yeah. this, gener this generational pressure yeah. that we're creating, it's, we're creating for ourselves, yeah. essentially. No, definitely. Um, I, I, think, I think that's the interesting thing, isn't it? When society has told you something for so long, that you have to create your own messages and your own defence mechanisms against those mm. and they become something that is passed down generation after generation. But then how much are these things still serving us? If anything, it's just preventing us from moving forward and evolving and doing better because it's like a wall that's preventing us from going further. Mm -hmm. But I think the good thing is, our generation now are having these talks. If it's not us doing things such as back exchange, there are loads of people from different communities who are having these public conversations. Um, I think it's just really important to remember what it's all about and the foundations, which is simply about trying to live our truths and to prevent the generational sort of traumas or pressures to continue on. I think we really need to focus on that and trying to grow as an entire community rather than trying to do the whole, you know, it's, it's good that you and I can have this talk, but then what? I think there's so many people who unfortunately might not have these conversations with, the, with their friends because 
that them and their friends it might be like an unnatural line of competition so everyone's just trying to climb up to get to the top but I think what would be great is if people don't try to necessarily flourish only as independents but actually try to flourish as a community I think that's what it comes down to is like not success for one but what does collective success look like mm. and I think also um not just appearing successful because I think I think that's something that happens to a lot of people it becomes about appearances and whatnot and I think when it does come to like wealth generational wealth it's about putting the foundations down for the next generation to be able to do better than we can do yeah um Definitely. Yeah. I think especially what you said about appearances, I think that's where social media becomes so harmful because everybody, like I was making me my cousin were having this talk um, and she works in PR and she was just talking about there's a lot of people in fashion, let's say, who might be, <laughs> who might physically look like, you know, appearances wise. But they're hungry underneath. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't, you don't, you know, you might have... Um, a rented bag or don't get me wrong I'm not I'm not trying to judge but it comes to a point of if you physically look like you have your shit together but you can't pay your rent or you know have you got savings in your account to try and one day buy a house like it's not about appearances or keeping up with the Jones as our parents would know of it's more about I think we need to really try to implement within our community the concept of yes make your money do do as good as you can wherever you can but also put money into your future like try to own property the amount there's so few people i know who are people of color not just black people people of color in general who do not necessarily come from families who own assets because mm-hmm. we're constantly trying to um work it's usually like renting like buying things to, to keep up with the parents is to look as, as similar to your neighbors who might have x y and z but i think it's not about it's not about appearances, we need to think of the foundation so that the next generation don't have to work dead end jobs that they hate in order to pay their rent. If you can work to be on a certain level that you own a house and then your children then don't have to have that struggle, you know? I think it's easier said than done, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think social media also does take a big role in putting the pressures on everyone to fits a um an approved like even that concept of like you're certified by instagram you get a tick that says you're a certified mm-hmm. human being like what makes you certified the fact that you have xy amount of followers mm-hmm. or this amount of likes i think we shouldn't be trying to chase that but i think with the community that with as as a community that we are currently in the generation that we're in currently i think people are more focused on appearances rather than the knowledge that we're learning to be able to share with others. I think that's the thing. I think, and even as much as I, we mentioned like generational wealth and stuff, I think educational wealth is probably the greatest mm. wealth that like we can have. And in and I think it's also thinking about how and which um, barriers are stopping young children from being able to develop and get the education they need in order to start a future. Um, and I think I think it also it comes down to learning about our own history and just as much as being able to see physical examples of success within the black community can help you envisage your own your own success, but also um, 
lost my I lost my attention. <laughs> I get what you mean in regards to the fact that at the end of the day education is key and we mm-hmm. need to try to always bring back that focus. But I do also I'm I'm very like torn when it comes to education because of course it's key and it's our foundations at the end of the day that enable us to go so far. But I do think this entrepreneurship, um, that method really needs to be I don't necessarily, when I say education, I don't just mean within traditional institutions. Mm. And I, I, actually, what I was going to say was in terms of education, in terms of black history, mm. and knowing positive things about our history, and which also can help you know that you can achieve, because there's so much great things that have been done throughout history. Do you know what I mean? Like, we're no, only no, taught no, 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 no post-slavery but like you know I saw a quote about um slavery in regards to people need to stop seeing slavery as black history it's not it just pulls our history uh, exactly it's a moment it was a moment but what happened prior to that like people even when we were having the talks of black exchange when I was saying things such as like the first university was in Mali Mm -hmm. like people always assume that if you're of African descent that you're uneducated and you, you come from struggle no universities began in Africa the fact that all of the books the, the libraries books were originated in Mali like these things when I was learning I, I was blown away and also I think we're, we're putting so much weight and um, um, gra- um, what's the word gravitas to mm. like um, institutions and do they even have all of this knowledge? Like, I've, I've heard of, like, um, big universities, like, not having teachers who can teach about African history or teach... I think it's like, yes, they have a certain amount of knowledge, mm. but maybe these institutions are not all the be-all and end-all, and it's how in which... I think it's how in which knowledge can be shared, because also... Um, there is also barriers already put in place. We have like the fees went up in terms of university mm. fees. There's so many barriers put in place of people getting an education. And then once you get into that education, what do they even give you? Like mm. for me at art school, um, I, I don't know what I paid for in all honesty. <laughs> to, to sit in a room with a tutor once a week. Not do you know? Week. Yeah, like Ben. This is what I mean, and like you're you're working all your way towards this one thing, and then you get there, and you're like, so what am I getting out of it? And then they tell you, oh, you, you need to do some internships now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. hundred percent. I think one thing what you mentioned about you know um, universities. Yes, don't get me wrong. We're not trying to slate that that route, but. Even for instance, I think when the pandemic and lockdowns happened, Zooms were becoming everything. Like, we all do everything through Zoom now. And so many things that we learned through Black History Studies and things we learned about Black History were all through these um, independent Zooms um, meetings. And it was like you were basically learning about Black History courses through Zoom. And what I learned during two Zooms that Yeah, attended, a couple of free Zooms is more Zooms than you learned. You have to pay for it, but it's the more I learned about black history was on those free Zooms and I did in the school I went to. And I went to Haberdasher Ass, which is one of the best schools in England. And all we learned about black history was Rosa Parks, who was too tired, she didn't want to get up off the bus, even though the fact is she was working in black civil rights politics before she decided to take that seat. And Martin Luther King. But the history that I learned about Mali, about Benin, like the um, Agoji warriors, about 
like Messiah, like all of these things that we were learning, even like with medical apartheid, I had no idea. I had touch base it because of my mother, but that's because she was educated enough to be able to pass that down. But these things that we're discovering now, that's all through Zoom. So yes, the educational system, going to school, university, they are things that you know you get praised for. But I do genuinely feel like you can learn a so much from other sources and I think we need to be able to share those sources and find a way to have more access to that rather than putting pressure on people to go into thousands of pounds of debt just to be taught a skill that you could predominantly learn in an internship. Well, yeah, I think unless you, unless it's something so specific like being a doctor yeah, or... Of course, yeah, but, yeah, like, yeah, but I think, you know... There are so many things like art or, or like English literature, these kinds of things, mm. like you can learn yourself and, and you can learn from others. But I think, I think it's also, I think we have to remember with these institutions is they are teaching us as much as they want us to know. Of course. So there's a purpose. reason why certain things are left out of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's about control at the end mm-hmm. of the day. I think that's, as a nation, as the human race, there has to always be a level of control. An order. An order. You have to know where you stand. You have the government, and then you have the hierarchy, and then you have, you know, you have classism, and there's a level of order that it needs to stay this way in order for, for Great Britain to be great. So I think that's not just even Britain in general, that's just the world. And I think, for me... Now I'm 29, I'm looking at the educational system just even more like shocked and flabbergasted by the fact that how is it that the key stage books that I was taught is the same that my younger cousin's being taught? Like how is it that the books aren't changing? You're learning about World War II, Winston Churchill was supposedly so great, but yet you also forget to leave out the fact that he was a huge racist. You have Hitler. It's the, it's the same history, and as years go by, history is changing. But yeah, that's not being doc. It's being documented by the younger generation. It's being documented, but when it comes to the actual books that the kids are taught, it's still the same. I I think I think essentially it's that they don't want people to question. And if you do, you're seen as disruptive. Mm-hmm. And it's it's yeah, it's it's about control. I think from a very early age they're teaching you how and which to move within society mm. um. I think that's the thing I think it's, it's very important that the youth understand that you know I think now we see that even more so like even when it comes to human rights and politics there's a lot of young youth who are opening the older generation's eyes and, and shouting for what they believe in which I totally respect mm-hmm. Um, because even in our parents' day, they were doing protests left, right, hand and centre. It's only when the Black Lives Matter movement again came up um, last summer that people were seeing how powerful and impactful protests can be. But even then, how much change happens? Because, you know? we're, because we've been protesting for years and mm-hmm. generations have been protesting. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's, it's not something new. I guess it's just, it's like... You, you make like tiny tiny little bits of progress mm. and 
I think sometimes it can overtly look like a lot more progress has been made than, than the reality, especially when it comes down to things like law and stuff, like, you know, it's like, it comes down to the, like, the small print. In the small print, not much has actually changed. Yeah, but that's true. public facing will make it look like things have changed. But um, we've just been given a question, and somebody's asked, does anyone know any black historians? The one that I know of mainly is Robin Walker. That's mm-hmm. the, if there, there are obviously many others, but um, Robin Walker is the main person that I know of. And with him, he always talks a lot. He's got a book called Before We Were Slaves, and that's the main book that a lot of people, such as Akala and other people alike, have um, learned from, because he always speaks about the history before... Um, slavery, so you get to learn about, um, like I said, Agoji warriors, Benin kings and queens, and universities, and important information that we're simply not taught in educational system that we have now. So Robin Walker is the main person that I know of, but you um, are going to see. There's David. I'm not cor- sure if I'm pronouncing surname correctly. Mm-hmm. David Olugosa. Yeah. Um, who um. He's done a lot about black British history um, and he also did a few documentaries on the BBC which are more accessible, easily accessible information in terms of black history and then I've got like quite a thick black history book, black British history book that he's wrote that's really interesting but it's, it is quite an intense. I think it's also, British, yeah, I think it's also, it, it can be intense when you're learning about history our history because a lot of it is hard to hear um so also some of it is amazing to hear Mm -hmm. like when you discover and for me it was a goji warriors i was so obsessed with them because they're basically the film black panther um the women all were skinheads and they were actually based on benin and goji Mm -hmm. warriors and for me it was like a skinhead for how many years so i was just (laughs) like i'm so excited by it but um the women were the um because obviously now in the 21st century, it's always men who are mm-hmm. in war and soldiers. But in Africa, in Benin times, in Goji Warriors, um, the women were the ones who were on um, front lines. So they were protecting the king. And they would actually dig holes into the ground to be able to hide away from who they were fighting. So I think things like that, discovering powerful women in, in history such as that was incredible. But really, the only one I I've read about a lot is Robin Walker. Mm-hmm. I know of the one that you mentioned because it has lots of documentaries on BBC iPlayer. I think they're still on there, actually. Yeah, I, I think they're still yeah. accessible. Um, well, there's so many other books. I think what we need to do in regards to like our social media, like our Instagram, obviously it's 2021, so I think we might have to like clear the whole the grid line and work on the website. But I think we definitely will put all of the links to all of the black stories that we have. But I think we've, we've made a list, that yeah, already. On our website, there is, there is um, some suggested books, um, books mm. and YouTube videos and stuff online to watch. Mm. So if you check out on the website, there are some resources there, but we'll be continually adding to them. Yeah. 2021. But I think overall, just to, before, because I know that these always cut out after a certain amount of time, it may cut out any minute now. But to summarise, I think when it comes to the concept of working twice as hard, I think now it's about finding the balance and recognising, yes, we have a work ethic that has become generational and it's passed down, but we need to make sure that we're focusing on our mental health with that. There's no harm in knowing that 
the work ethic has to be great in order to create legacy and to to feed into the um, the drive that our parents once had. But I do think we need to recognise there needs to be an element of balance and focusing on that because it's all going to well us working 100 times as hard. But if our mental isn't stable, then that's where as a community, mm-hmm. we, if, if as a community, you're all unwell mentally, what, what generations or legacy are mm-hmm. you going to be? Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's like, and I think people have to question what they're working hard for. Because I think mm. it's all very well working hard for your children. But if you don't see or speak to your children that much because you're busy working so hard. Yeah. Like, yeah so I think it's, it's hard. It's yeah. hard because it's, it's, diffi- it's difficult in England mm-hmm. being able to survive and, like, never mind, right. thrive. Yeah. But that is the goal. Yeah. That is the goal. That's the goal. 100%. <laughs> Okay, we should we wrap it up? Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to be doing future projects and we'll be announcing that because we have had been able to use the GoFundMe money that we built. Um, last summer, we did United Against Oppression and we've been able to actually use that money and give it to all of the charities. So that's something they want to thank because that was amazing. Mm-hmm. And we also have our own Black Exchange Fund that's there and we've managed to raise some money for that. So we definitely, hopefully when COVID decides to relax a bit, be able to actually use those finances to hopefully do an exhibition and to bring the community back together again. Because that's what it was all about when we started. It was about having these conversations and creating community Mm -hmm. through these conversations. Because as Mm -hmm. much as it's great us to having these conversations, but it's it's bigger than us. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's definitely the focus. And once we have it all clear to go ahead with those community projects, we'll definitely be doing that and introducing more people to join. So thank you. Thank you.